Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Tony Ambrosio. Tony is a veteran broadcast journalist, very well known for his sports coverage both here in the GTA and across Canada. He has worked for the Score Television Network, for Sportsnet, and for TSN, so he has seen and been a part of the full Canadian sports broadcasting spectrum. Currently a freelance story editor for TSN, Tony also teaches the next wave of broadcasters at the College of Sports Media in Toronto. Welcome, Tony, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, first of all, I'm very well, thank you. Uh, thanks for the invite. I'm honored to be on. And I am in uh, Burlington, Ontario, which is where I live now. Excellent. Let's start with current day. What is Tony Ambrosio up to professionally these days? Well, I'm working at TSN, like you said. You, you nailed the uh, the intro, which was quite nice, perfectly. Uh, I'm working at TSN as a story editor. I do some field producing. I have done in the past some uh, announcing at TSN 1050 radio. Um, and I also teach at the College of Sports Media one, two, three days a week, depending on the time of year and what's going on. And uh, I also do the public address for the Ontario Hockey League's Mississauga Steelhead. So I keep myself... Uh, Fairly busy. That is a full dance card for sure. Yeah, and plus I do some descriptive video work for the Olympics for NBC and the Paralympics too. So uh, like I say, it's a, it's a busy card, but I'm very grateful and thankful. Excellent. Well, let's please go all the way back, get the Tony Ambrosio story. <laughs> you are not a native Torontonian. No. no. You uh, Tell us about your background. So I'm from uh, London, Ontario, and I always tell everybody when I was a day old, I wanted to do sports. <laughs> like right out of the womb, I wanted to do sports. Uh, I remember sitting in front of my television as a seven, eight, nine-year-old uh, watching the hockey game with the Maple Leafs and then doing the play-by-play myself. I loved the Leafs, still do in a way, love the Pittsburgh Steelers, still do in, in an odd way. I just uh, I, I just grew up in London. I just grew up a huge sports fan. But as much as I love the athletes, I admired the play-by-play people probably just as much, if not more. And, of course, the reporters, too. I was a, I'm a big fan of reporting and, uh, and broadcasters. Well, very early on, you knew, as you say, you wanted to get into sports broadcasting. Of course, there was no internet, no email, so you actually hand-wrote, and then mailed a physical letter to the great Dick Enberg at NBC. Oh, why? What, what did you expect to get back, and did you get anything back? How did you hear that? Oh, my goodness. I must have put that somewhere. That's awesome. Andrew, you were prepared. Um, yeah, so I'm trying to think how old I was when I did this. Probably in my teens, mid-teens. And Dick Enberg would do all the football games, and he would do a lot of Steelers games. So I just wrote, I believe, to NBC... And I would say about three months later, I got a handwritten note back from Dick Enberg with a photograph, an autograph that said, oh my, Dick Enberg. No, oh my, was Dick Enberg's catchphrase, right? That was his claim to fame. That was his line he would use every time somebody made a great play. Oh my. So, and in the note, Dick Enberg gave me advice on on how to get into this career. And his advice was practice in front of the TV, practice with your tape recorder, go to the local park. He said always his, 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 and, and all his advice had to do with practice, 
keep working, be determined, don't give up. And everything he said, Andrew, everything he said is true. And much of the advice that he gave me then, some 30 some odd years ago, is the advice I give to students today. It, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. That was, and again, like you say, no internet, right? So at that time, you're young. How do I reach out to these guys? It was by mail. I used to collect autographs. I would write letters to Jean Beliveau, autograph. Bobby Orr, when he was with the Blackhawks, I got his autograph and he was just writing letters to the teams, to these people. And uh, yeah, just really lucky. Well, those, as you know, those principles still count today. And another thing you know, which is the persistence to follow up with people, you had another great experience. Now, I went to school in London, so I know that it's very common to cross the bridge and go to Detroit Tiger Games. Yes. We're absolutely determined, Tony, to meet legendary Tigers broadcaster Ernie Harwell. What happened with that? So, first time at Tiger Stadium, I'm in about 20, 21 years old, and I said, I got to meet Ernie Harwell. So I went, you know, you're fearless, right, in your early 20s and your late teens. It's funny, isn't it? You're just fearless. You say, what the heck? I found out where the booth was. I looked for the signs that said broadcast booth, and this is old Tiger Stadium, which is no longer around. Michigan and Trumbull, famous building, beautiful ballpark. It just reeks of baseball. So I go up the steps, and there's a security guard outside the broadcaster's door. And I said, hi, I'm sorry, I'm from Canada. <laughs> I tried to meet Ernie Farwell. And, <laughs> and this security guard, I'm sure, had been inundated by others who had the same request as I did. So he looked at me, he saw I wasn't a threat, he knew I was pretty sincere, and Ernie Harwell, about, he goes back into the booth, and during a break between innings, because Ernie took some of the innings off, he came out to introduce himself to me. And I could not, I still had the picture in my head of this frail elderly gentleman, wrinkled hands, reaching out to shake my hand, and I remember thinking, this is the greatest day of my life. Because growing up in London, at that time when I was young, the Blue Jays didn't come into play until 77. So I was born in 66. So from 60, you know, when I started following baseball from 70, 71 to 76, I didn't really have a team, but I heard Ernie Harwell all the time. All the time. And my best friend at the time was a ginormous Tigers fan. So for me to see Ernie, to listen to Ernie, to know I got to meet him was an unbelievable highlight. He was so kind, so gracious. I just said, hello, I really admire you. He got my ticket stub and he signed it. Uh, God bless Ernie Harwell. I still remember, God bless Ernie Harwell. He was just so kind and gracious. And I just explained to him how I loved the work he did. He appreciated it. I want to get into broadcasting one day. He said, keep working hard, much like what Dick Enberg said a few years earlier. And it was the most surreal meeting of your idol you can ever have. Because you know what they say, Andrew, don't meet your idols, right? They, they, it can go bad. Oh, this... we're going we're gonna to come to that, Tony. Okay. <laughs> I, got some, oh, I got some for you there. Before that, I got another good one for you, though, okay. and that is after you attended your hometown school, Fanshawe College, for their yes. very well-regarded broadcast journalism program, during yeah. what they called a caravan, a Toronto Blue Jays caravan or fan festival, 
you had an inspirational interaction with the late, great Blue Jays broadcaster, Tom Cheek. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So again, much like Ernie Harwell. And I remember just that deep voice of, of Tom Cheek and and just meeting him and, hi, Tom, it's Tony. And he's got the deep voice. And I was in the, you, know, you say, at Fanshawe. And at Fanshawe College in the broadcast journalism program, we got to do some really cool things. We got to cover city council, cover board of education meetings, cover the court trials, and we got to do some sports. So I was a big sports guy. Not a lot of people in my class were big sports people. So I got to cover the Blue Jays caravan, and there's Tom Cheek, and I went over and talked to him, and he gave me the old line, as sure as God made little green apples, if you keep working, you will reach your dreams. And again, it's one of those things that you can't forget, but the way he said it in his deep, baritone, beautiful Tom Cheek voice, this was a guy that you were listening to, right? This was a guy that you'd hear it every day from April to September calling baseball. And um, the original voice of the Blue Jays with early win, early win. So it was uh, it was pretty cool. And again, I'm in the broadcasting course and I realized, okay, you realize at that time, this is what you want to do, right? When you're doing it, when you're covering these caravans, when you're doing the interviews, when you see these idols of yours, you realize this is what you want to do. And and, and meeting Tom Cheek was pretty cool uh, that, that day and at the caravan in London, Ontario. That is excellent. Now, Tony, you graduated from Fanshawe in 1987, and you landed your first real media job for Bayshore Broadcasting at CFOS AM Radio in Owen Sound. Yes. It was here that you learned your very first on-the-job lesson, that you must turn that tape recorder on. <laughs> oh, my goodness, Andrew. Where are you getting all this research from? Yeah, so I'm I'm a young cub reporter, I guess they call us. I'm in Owen Sound, and it's a weekend, and I'm covering news. And that day, there was a terrible house fire. And uh, here I am as the young reporter. We got my tape recorder going. And again, as I mentioned the word fearless before, you're fearless, right? You know, you want to do a good job. It's my first few days, first week on the job. Don't mess this up, Tony. Do not mess this up. There's the guy. Family is devastated. I went over and I said, you know, I'm sorry about your loss. Do you mind if I, if I talk to you about what happened? So I asked him about the fire. He was so good. Oh, the heartfelt sadness came through his voice. The devastation that his family was going through looking at this house fire, knowing what's been lost, but knowing that they as a family are okay. Nobody was hurt. Great interview. Great interview. I finished the interview. I looked down and I realized I didn't press play and record. I had nothing, nothing on my tape. I can laugh about it now, but at the time, I'm sure my face turned white as a ghost. There's panic written all over my face, and I'm thinking, oh boy, what do I do now? And you know what? It's my first week on the job, first week or second week. I've got no choice. I've got to interview him again. So I went back to the same gentleman, and he was so gracious, so kind, so nice. I pressed play and record, it worked, and we did the interview, and he was very nice. He was great, and and I always think back to that because it was a great lesson to have early, that you make sure, and I know it's so, so different with equipment now, you make sure it's recording. You make sure you see the tape cassette turning. You make sure you see the red button going and the audio levels are working before you actually start. And on the same vein, 
many years after, I went to interview um, Dino Cicerelli, who was with the Sarnia Sting at the time. So it was a bit of, we wanted to do this for, for between periods of, a, of an OHL broadcast. So I find Dino, I'm getting my tape recorder set, and things are they're stuck. They're not working. I had to lift up the tape, put the tape back in, press play and record. Oh, we're working. So I look up, and he's already gone. <laughs> for the interview. That took too long to get set up. There was another lesson. Be prepared. Make sure the equipment's working. Make sure you're set to go, because you never know the other person's time, their patience level, or whatever. So, yeah, great lessons. It's all these early principles and lessons learned that led you to your success later. But yeah, you do have to go through them all. And yeah. certainly at Owen Sound, Tony, you covered a little bit of everything. So you really rounded out your skill set with regards to being a reporter and being a broadcaster. In the late 90s, though, you pivoted to working at Queen's Park as a legislative assistant to MPP Bill Murdoch and worked on the PC caucus staff. How did this move to the political world come about? So it's interesting. So I've been at Owen Sound for about uh, 10, 11 years. So I'm approaching 30 years of age. You know, you get the old midlife crisis, I guess, or a 30-year crisis. I'm not sure what they call it now. And I'm thinking, geez, I like what I'm doing here. Love the people I'm involved with. Love the community. But can I be doing more? Should I be doing more? Is there something more for me out there? I'm single at the time. And the MPP for the area, Bill Murdoch, is someone I got to know because I would interview Bill so often for news stories for the local radio station and all its out. And Bill, he approached me, actually. He said, I've got an opening. I'd love to have you on the staff. I think you're great with people. You've got a great attitude. You can handle the media. I'd love to have you. So I said, you know what? If I don't do this now, I will never leave. And again, not that living in Old Sound was bad, but you always wonder, is there something else out there, right? You wonder if you can do more. So um, really heart and soul, lots of soul searching, lots of thinking and, uh, I know I upset my best friends up there. They were pretty bummed and pretty angry with me. But uh, it's a move that, looking back, opened so many doors for me, led to so many opportunities. And again, this isn't a criticism of Owen Sound. It's just when you're in that small community, away from the center of the broadcasting universe, if I can call Toronto that, you're kind of limiting yourself as to what you can and can't do. And as much as I enjoyed being in Owen Sound, covering news, doing a sports show, working on OHL broadcast. I just wondered, can I be doing more? Is there more for me out there? So I took the leap, went from the broadcast side to the other side of the media spectrum, if you will, working with the MPP, writing some of his speeches, sending notes to media, doing news releases, dealing with the public. And I enjoyed it, but I realized about six months in, I missed the media. And from there, I, I'm not sure if you're going to ask about the score or not, but from there, while I was at Queen's Park, the score television network was starting to take off. And I said to myself, you know, what the heck? I'm going to reach out to the score. So I'm at Queen's Park, working at Queen's Park, and I reach out to the score. And John Mello was the person who I reached out to. And this is another lesson for everybody. You never know who's watching, who's listening. So John was the, the king guru of, of the score, but he had a cottage at Sobble Beach. And Sobble Beach is 20 minutes away from Owen Sound. And at Sobble Beach, he would hear my sports show. 
So talk about small world, and you never know who's listening or watching. But I went to the school where I approached myself, and John Melville says, oh, I know you. And I'm thinking, how the heck does this guy in Toronto know the heck, who the heck I am? Well, he had a cottage. He listened to my sports show. He listened to me on the radio. And that led the ball rolling to the score and one thing to another. That is amazing. And as you know, you yeah. never know who's listening, who's on the other side of that door, who's going to receive your email. Yeah. Now, as you know, Tony, you joined the Score Television Network during its heyday, this being the pre-Rogers period, well yes. before what it is primarily known as today, which is as a sports gambling app. What do you remember about your experiences at the score. Well, do you have about uh, six hours? Because we might need that in the hour. Okay, so before before I do that, let me just tell you about more about the John Melville connection. Because, so John says, yeah, come in for a visit to the score. So I go in for a visit to the score, and I'm there, and I'm watching people do their thing, and I'm thinking, oh, I could do this. Oh, yeah, I could definitely do this. But I felt it was such a young place. I felt kind of out of, out of my element, just a bit, because it was so, so young. And I'm, I'm in my early 30s at the time, and everybody's in their early 20s. And I'm watching people work, and I'm thinking, this is cool, but I don't think this is for me, just because I think I might be too old. So I'm about to leave, and James Sabalski is there. So, again, connection time. When James was doing radio play-by-play for the Ottawa 67s, I got to meet him in Owen Sound when they came for a game. So James... Here's a great story, Andrew. I don't think you have this on your notes. So James is doing the play-by-play of an Ottawa Owen Sound game. I'm in the booth, and beside me is my good friend Fred Wallace, who was doing the PA in Owen Sound. And Fred starts to yell at a player on the ice because the Ottawa player was giving an Owen Sound player the business. Well, beside James Sabalski is Lance Galbraith. He was a tough son of a gun. And if it wasn't for Sabalski holding Lance back, he would have fought Freddie. It would have been a fight in the press box, no one's out. So I, so at that time, I said to James, hey, thanks for saving Freddie's life. And we kind of joked about it. So when I went to the score, there's Sabolski. He remembered me from our conversation years earlier in Owen Sound. And he helped me, don't leave, don't leave, stay and do a demo. So I did the demo. John heard the demo. Anthony Ciccone heard the demo. Dave Rutherford, who was a part of the broadcasting team, heard the demo. And from there, I got... I got part-time work and freelance work at the score. Anyway, so what do I remember about the score? What a great place to get your feet wet. And even though I was in my 30s, I was still learning about TV because I had done mostly radio. I love the fact that we knew we weren't TSN. We knew we weren't Sportsnet. We were the score. And we would try different things every day, right? Tried to have fun. Tried to tell stories. And because of people like Anthony and Dave Rutherford, they allowed us to make mistakes. They allowed us to be me. And what I remember the most was how much fun it was. Yeah, we were doing sports, which was fun. We were making a ton of mistakes, which isn't fun. But we had so much fun. That's the big thing I remember from my time at the score was the people I got to work with, yeah, I got to do some amazing things, got to cover some incredible things, whether it was a Memorial Cup, a Stanley Cup playoff, Blue Jays games, Leafs games, what at Raptors. It was the fun that we as a team had. Such a close-knit group of people, so much fun. I learned so much from the likes of James Sabalski, 
Elliot Friedman. I learned so much. It was incredible. Loved every second of it. Um, now, can I tell you my favorite score story? Please do, Tony. Now, I'm not sure if you have this one in your notes. So one day at the score, we were doing all our things, putting our highlight packages together, and all of a sudden, we're off the air. And nobody knows why. Why are we off the air? And there's panic going on at the station. People don't know what's going on. And we had a real small server, like a, like a server room. It should be about thousands of square feet. Ours was maybe 20 square feet, okay? We had one small national TV operation, I tell you. So nobody knows what's going on. Now, at the time, we had painters in the building painting the walls and fixing the carpets. So we're trying to figure out, why are we off the air? And we approach, a bunch of us approach the server, and we go, what is that smell? Like something was off in the server room. Something didn't smell right. Then you could see some of the wires smoking. So we couldn't figure out what happened. Who caused this smoke in the server room? And we're all scratching our heads. You know, it's late at night. We're trying to figure out how to get on the air for our score tonight show with Martine and Greg. And eventually we found out, not sure when, if it was the day after or not, that one of the painters went pee in a bucket because that's that's what he did. That's what they do. Accidentally took the bucket over and made human put this off the air for a good hour or two. But that's my favorite story because where else is that going to happen? That's not going to happen at TSN or Sportsnet. Only at the score. Only at the score. It sounds like something you'd expect from WKRP or... Uh, that was a great comparison. We were WKRP times 10. Small group, got along, loved everything about it. As you note, the score was so much fun because of the people. The score oh. was very well-documented breeding ground for future broadcasting talent. Who are some of your score colleagues that we would recognize today? Oh my! Well, Elliot Friedman, for sure, and James Sabalski are two that come to mind. Steve Cooley's is one of my favorite people because he always cracked me up. He had so much energy. Now, you had Steve on the air, correct? Absolutely. He, he was great. He told the story about the time he peed on the air, but he couldn't leave, and he was still between the highlights. He was crushed. He was Lisa Bowes. He just kept going on and on. When he was done, the show, he got up. You could see the big stains on the front of his pants. No big deal. That was Steve. He had a job to do, right? I'm going to do the job. So Steve Cooley is for sure. Lucky to work with Arash Madani, Sarah Orleski, the great Patricia Bull, who's working now in Ottawa doing the 5 and 6 p.m. newscast, along with a radio show. Those are people that come to mind right away. Yeah, it's, like to me, I look at Canadian television today. Tim McAuliffe and Sid Sixera, how can I forget those guys? My God. Or, um, Adnan Verk. Where would so much of the Canadian television be today without the score influence? Like the ticker was the score. When I see these graphics, you know, the graphic banners now on, on TSN and Sportsnet, where did that start from? The score. Where did the live, going to live post-game news conferences start at the score? It was a trendsetter. Like, I am telling you, a score is a trendsetter. And we always talk about this, Andrew, when I catch up with former score, my score colleagues. We got to write a book. In fact, one of the guys wants to do a documentary, like a, like a, a TV documentary. I said, you got to do it. 
because there's so Absolutely. many stories and the impact the score had on so much. Like it's 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 remarkable the impact the score had. Agreed. There should be a reunion and there should be yeah. a documentary. Yes. Now I mean we'll feel on that. In July 2009, Tony, you left the score and joined Sportsnet on a freelance basis, but this again broadened you. This exposed you to the world of Olympic Games coverage. Yeah, so I was freelancing at Sportsnet, but it wasn't enough. I needed more. And then Anthony Ciccone, who was at the score, said the OBS, Olympic Broadcasting Services, the world feed. So when you watch the Olympics on CBC or NBC, 90% of the video you are watching comes from the Olympic Broadcasting Services. So I got, thanks to Anthony and thanks to my experience, I got to go to the Olympics in Vancouver in 2010, working it for Olympic Broadcasting Services. And my role was to cut highlights of the various sports and voice them, do the vo- just like I did at the school when I started, doing voiceovers on the highlights. And I got to work with so many incredible people from England, New Zealand, Australia, USA, Portugal, you name it. It was a it was a world melting pot of people coming together. Lots of uh, the video editors were from Sweden, you know, and they were all so much fun to work with. And they were long days, 12, 14, 18 hour days. You would take the highlights, work with the video editor, make the two hour baseball game or basketball game into a one and a half, two minute long highlight pack, voice the highlight pack and away it would go. It would go to the server. So any rights holder... Anywhere in the world that had the Olympics rights could use our highlights for their broadcast and could use my voice for their broadcast. So I, I, I joked that I was a big hit in, in, in New Zealand because part of the job, too, was to do play-by-play of some of the events. So I did play-by-play for curling, if you can believe that, Andrew. I'm not a curling guy. I like it, but I'm sure not an expert. And I got to do a curling play-by-play. And one of my colleagues with the Olympic Broadcasting Services is from New Zealand. And she said, yeah, my mom heard you on the broadcast. And I said, what? Well, let's in New Zealand, Andrew. So we were, we were laughing about that for days. Well, I think when you talk about Olympics, it brings up a very interesting story from behind the curtain, so to speak. When you worked for NBC on the Beijing Olympics, Tony, you did your work not from China, but actually from Stanford, Connecticut. Yeah, so... I'd been doing some work for NBC, descriptive video work. So think of it as closed captioning for the visually impaired. So you try to fill in the gaps with your broadcast about, oh, you know, he closed his eyes. He lifted his fist in joy. Tears streamed down her face, that kind of thing. So we did it for, for I've done it for Beijing, Tokyo, the Beijing Winter Games. It's It's been remarkable. But with NBC looking to save money, and this was just before COVID, we didn't go to China. We didn't go to Brazil in 2016. We didn't go to Tokyo. We went to Stanford, Connecticut. So NBC Sports have a big campus in Stanford, Connecticut. And we got to broadcast off television monitors about 24 inches wide the broadcast of the Olympics for NBC doing descriptive video, which is difficult to do from a small monitor and equally difficult to do when you're thousands of miles away from the actual event. Uh, but it was a wonderful experience. You know, it's funny. I tell everybody this. It's the hardest thing I've ever done to script a video for live sports. You have to guess when the person's going to speak, when they're not going to speak, 
try to fill in the gaps. It's all happening live. So you got to really get the old brain going. I did want to talk about that because we've all seen that on TV. It says for descriptive video, you can do this or you can go to this channel and you describe a little that is closed captioning for the visually impaired. I wonder, is it effectively the same as what you would hear on a radio broadcast? Very much so. Very similar. But a lot of it too, when we do it, you want to try to fill the emotion as well. So, for example, the descriptive video I was able to do for the USA-Canada women's hockey game, gold medal game. And in essence, what you tried to do is not talk over the play-by-play guy. So if the play-by-play guy is talking, you let him or her speak. Then when they're done, you try to fill in the gaps. Old player punches left arm in the air. Two players high five. So it's very much like radio. But when Canada lost to the U.S. for the gold medal game, the announcer was smart. He stopped talking, right? He let the pitchers do the work. Well, if you're visually impaired, the pitchers don't quite work. So I tried to fill in the gaps. Gloves and sticks thrown up in the air. Canadian players weeping on the bench. Two American players grab a flag and hoist it to the air. American players hugging each other. Gold medals draped around their... You know what I mean? Just try to paint the picture for the visually impaired. And I cannot tell you how many people of the visually impaired community appreciate how much they appreciate this. Because they will tell us in our group focus chats that they're watching the Olympics with usually somebody who is can see. And a lot of the time they spend their time saying, what happened there? What did I miss? What, what, what did I, what happened? But now we're able to fill in the gaps. So they're both able to watch the same broadcast and both feel like they're part of it. And that's very, that's very powerful to hear that. As I said, Andrew, it's the hardest thing I have ever done. I can see why you really have to be not only paying attention, but you're you're broadening your toolkit again. And I'm glad yeah. you explained all that. I, I did not know what descriptive video was. So thank you for yeah. that. And again, it's more for the scripted shows, right? You know, you see with movies and comedies and dramas, but it's starting to come into live sports. Not a lot, but I know for the Olympics, it's very big for NBC because they want to broaden their, their base and make sure that everybody feels like they're part of the Olympic experience. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like it makes a lot of sense to do. Now, Tony, you also teach at the College of Sports Media in Toronto. What is the College of Sports Media? So it's 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 a two-year broadcasting school located in downtown Toronto, not far from George Brown College. It's about 40 students in the first year and 40 students in the second year. And I will put it this way. It is a broadcasting school, but it is a very practical broadcasting school. We don't spend much time talking about the history of broadcasting, the history of television. We do it. You know, okay, you want to do a 30-second sports update? Do it. We'll teach you how to write it. We'll teach you how to broadcast on the radio, television, how to shoot a camera, how to video edit, how to be a producer of a radio show, how to be a producer of a television sports center show. And then we do sports center shows. We'll do 10-minute shows, expand it to 15, then 20, then half-hour sports center shows. You're cutting the highlights. You're putting the pieces together. We have a director, on-air anchors, reporters, camera people, video editors, everything you can think of. It is the most practical school experience I think there is in Canada. And now we have a lot of people who work behind the scenes at TSN, at Sportsnet. We have people who are on the air at Sportsnet. Faisal Kamisa, Daniel Michaud, 
Kayla Gray on TSN. They're all former CSM students. And then we have people all across the country doing news anchoring. Catalina Gillies in Barry at CTV. Uh, Jeremy Sharon in Ottawa working at Parliament Hill. So we have, it's a relatively new school. I think it's now 10 or 11 years old. It was started by David Lannis, who was a former colleague of my at the score. Like, it's not a very big school. That's why I like it too, right? Everybody knows everybody. The students get to know the instructors and vice versa. Very hands-on. But you get a lot of practical experience. And um, not only in sports, but we, you know, news, how to report, how to do interviews. You name it, we work on it. And it's really a fun place to be. I love it because the energy from the students. It reminds me of me 30 years ago, right? That energy, that passion to get into the business. On that note, this is not breaking news, but the sports broadcasting industry <laughs> dramatically changed over yes. your career. It continues yeah. to change. Tony, what is new media? And, and do you feel that colleges today are prepared to teach students that are entering a very disrupted media industry? Yeah, new media. I'm not even sure what it is myself. I'm guessing it's social media. Um, you know, getting your word out in TikTok videos or Instagram or Twitter or blogs, if that's what they're still called, I don't know, YouTube, right? So it's, it's, it's growing. It's changed the way the business is done. And I think it's given a lot more platforms to a lot of people. In some cases, good. In some cases, I'm not so sure it's good. But it's given a lot of people a lot of information, a lot of entertainment options, a lot of things to seek out there. I think schools are starting to teach it better than they did certainly two or three years ago. If they don't, they're behind the times. And I know at our school, at the College of Sports Media, where I work part-time, we are doing more and more of the new media for sure. It's, it's a growing field. And I don't know what the future of the current sports media holds. I don't know what Sports Center is going to look like in five years. Because it's really changed in the first five years, if I go back just five years from now. It's a lot more talking heads, a lot more opinion and less highlights, which is fine. But I honestly don't know where the mainstream media that we now know is going to look like in five years. But I do know this new media, as you refer to it, Andrew, is going to keep advancing, is going to keep changing, and is going to keep growing. So if you don't adapt, you're in trouble. And on that note, I understand that you like to share the words of that great world philosopher, the late Casey Kasem, keep your feet on the ground and reach for the stars. <laughs> reach for the stars, that's so true. And I always tell my students, you know, and, and I, I always say to my students, I know this is going to sound corny, and I don't, I don't mean to say it, but I'm being very sincere when I say it. You've got one life, right? One life. Make the most of it as you can. If you want to get into broadcasting, give it a shot. And because of the avenues out there today, right? From YouTube, from Instagram, from Twitter, from all these platforms, you have a place to get your voice out there now. Like when I started out, you know, we and I are the same vintage. We didn't have that option. We had radio, we had TV. That was it. You want to be a broadcaster. And there weren't a lot of TV stations, and there weren't a lot of, well, there were a number of radio stations, but your your options were limited. That's no longer the case. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to make money. I cannot guarantee you that. But if you want to try and be heard, do it. I've got a number of former students who do a number of different things on various platforms, whether it's podcasting, 
or or on Instagram or YouTube or TikTok videos, which is great. Keep doing that. You will be heard because like I said earlier, you just never know who's listening. You never know who's watching. You never know that person. You might run into them at a, for a job in Toronto. You just never know. You never know who you're going to connect with in this business. You've got to stick with it. Persistence. Yeah. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 175 additional episodes available anytime. We got TVO's Steve Pakin, our Canadian ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, Olympic gold medalist Donovan Bailey, Mark McCoy, and Bruni Surin, the king of Bay Street, Wes Hall, and Glass Tigers, Alan Frew. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Tony, now it's time for the segment we call Don't Meet Your Heroes, because dot, 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 yada, yada, yada. It may or may not go the way you would. You have a few heroes you've met, Tony. Let's start by asking, how did it go meeting and interviewing NFL Hall of Fame quarterback Dan Marino? Well, the first time... Okay, so here's the, here's the scene. I um, I love Dan Marino because he's a Pittsburgh guy. So I was hoping the Steelers were going to draft him. So the Steelers don't draft Dan Marino in the 1981 NFL draft, or 84 draft, so I forget what year. I'm all, I'm all, yeah, it's 82, 82, 82 draft. Anyway, whatever. Don't draft him. They draft a defensive tackle by the name of Gabe Rivera. So right away I'm ticked off and I kick a hole in my parents' basement. That's so angry I was. Shouldn't have done that. Sorry, mom. I apologize. And then Gabe Rivera, a wonderful player, but tragically was paralyzed in a drunk driving accident. He got drunk and into an accident. Just, it's just an awful story. So Dan Marino was, you know, had the great Hall of Fame career and my Steelers struggled, but that's, that's okay. So he's been, he's been available to be interviewed in Niagara Falls. So I said to my boss, please let me go. Please, 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 I want to do this. So sure enough, he said, go ahead. He's going to be in Niagara Falls. Here's where you got to go. So I go to Niagara Falls. I am pumped. I'm going to meet one of my favorite athletes of all time. Oh, I love this guy. He's Italian. He's Pittsburgh. He's, I love him. So we get to Niagara Falls and we're waiting because he's playing in a charity golf tournament and we're waiting. Then he's playing in a charity poker tournament and we're waiting. One hour becomes two, becomes three. And I'm thinking, we're not going to get this interview. So I'm all depressed. He finally finishes his poker tournament. He comes approaching me. And as soon as I say, Mr. Marino, my name is Tony uh, from The Score. He stopped. He goes, another effing interview? I'm thinking, oh my God, I've tipped off my idol. I tipped off my idol. Oh no, I'm so sorry. And I go, uh, yeah, we, we kind of set this up. So I'm trying to keep, trying to keep my composure. And he looks at me, he goes, and he kind of rolls his eyes. Okay, so he does the interview. So it's a great interview. He's fantastic. But he couldn't wait to finish the interview. But as soon as he finished, I said, well, wait a second. You, So we had agreed, our network and, and Dan's people, that he was going to send a message to Damon Allen on the Argonaut Jumbotron. Because earlier that season, Damon Allen became the pro football all-time passing leader, passing Dan Marino. So Marino... Oh, so he kind of shrugs his shoulders, shakes his head. It says, okay, fine, I'll do it. Puts on the microphone, you know, the back, <laughs> the microphone to his shirt. Puts on the old fake smile. 
He goes, hey, Damon, it's uh, it's Dan Marino. Congratulations on all, all your success in Canada. And when he's just Canada, he rolls his eyes like a disgust and derision. <laughs> and then he couldn't wait to take off the microphone as fast as he could, and he left us. Oh, my God, Andrew, I was both sad, angry, and thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. Our rolled into one. <laughs> and in all fairness to Dan, we interviewed him a couple of years later with Jim Kelly to promote the Rogers series. And he was fantastic. He was, both him and Jim Kelly were tremendous. And that, that made my day, that interview. But anyway. Excellent. Back in the good books. Yes. Tony, what about your IRL interactions with the great one, Wayne Gretzky? Wow. Talk about class. So I forget what it was. It was a charity golf tournament and I was with the score at the time. And we got to interview Wayne Gretzky. So we're waiting for Wayne. And I'm thinking, where is all the media? Like, there's no other media here. Am I going to get a one-on-one with Wayne Gretzky? And I'm kind of nervous. I'm thinking, no. What's, did I miss it? So we're in the um, in the lobby bar area, just walking around. And I'm, and I'm looking for someone to talk to to see if I could set something up with Wayne. And who approaches me? Wayne Gretzky. Like, can you believe that? Here's the greatest Canadian athlete considered by many of all time. He sees me with my little score microphone. Hey, you guys want to talk to me? I go, holy smokes. Yes, yes, I do. And sure enough, he was great. He went outside, did a long interview. My only regret from that day was I wasn't smart enough. And I guess, you know, Cam, it was different without the cell phones at the time to have my picture taken with Wayne Gretzky. Not so much pose, but me interviewing Wayne. That's my biggest regret, I would say. It's really one of my biggest regrets in, in broadcast. I didn't have my picture take with Wayne Gretzky. But talk about class. He didn't have to approach us. He did not have to do this interview. It looked like we were the only media there. So I'm not sure if we weren't supposed to be there or not. But we were the only ones there. But he was fantastic. Yeah, just a class act that day. Just class. Excellent. Well, that's good. We got another good one. Well, Tony, I know that you will have had a good experience with this guy because his nickname was, in fact, Gentleman Jean. How was your time with Mr. Jean Belliveau? Oh, this is incredible. So this is going back to my radio days. So, again, as I said earlier, I was pretty fearless. I, was, I wasn't I was afraid to reach out to people to get guests. So I would do a, an hour sports show, and I would get my guest on for about 20 minutes, one day, five days a week. So we, I, I, I reached out to Jean Balibo and I couldn't believe he called me back. So that was number one. Then he said, I would love to do it, Mr. Ambrosio. I go, oh my God. Oh my God. We're talking about the classiest of classiest people willing to do the show. I said, well, I'm only going to take 20 minutes of your time. You take as long as you need. Okay. So we set the interview up. He came on. So again, I said 20 minutes. So I ask him a couple questions. He gives great answers. The phones start to light up. Little Owen Sound, population 20,000, radio show, and the phones are lighting up like a Christmas tree. So I'm taking callers after caller. People just want to talk to Jean Beliveau, and he's great. One caller, in fact, started to speak French, as Jean Beliveau answered in French. And then at one time, Jean says, uh, I should translate what I just said, and he translated it, and he was so good. He was on with me for 50 minutes. A 20-minute interview, only supposed to be 20 minutes. He was on for 50 minutes because we had so many callers to get through. And I kept saying, I'm really, I'm, I'm so sorry, sir, that this is taking forever. 
No need to apologize, Tony. I'm having a wonderful time. Like you talk about unbelievable class. And that interview, I will never forget how gracious, kind, and classy he was. And that he allowed me to keep all the callers going until every one of them got their question or got their interaction with them. And I, I, always, I always thought, man, that's, boy, boy, that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Some guys are at just a different level. Yeah. They oh, really yeah. know how to treat their fans you know, and their and, colleagues. And Danny Gallivan, to a certain degree, was the same way. He was also on around that same time with me. And he was just so wonderful and, oh, just beautiful. Growing up in London, Tony, you note your favorite teams were the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Toronto Maple Leafs. Your captain is also my captain, Danny nice. Sittler. Yeah, my favorite player, my favorite athlete of all time. When I was a kid, he was a guy I admired the most. And uh, he was playing at a charity softball game in London, Ontario, when I was about 10 or 11 years old. Well, maybe actually younger, maybe eight or nine. And I had to get his autograph. I don't care what I had to do. I had to get it. And he happened to be the last out of the game. So he pops out there in the game. And as soon as the game is over, all the kids are rushing on the field. And of course, Ambrosio rushes on the field towards Daryl Siller. And I wasn't going to let him out of my sight until I got my autograph, which I got. And then I was very lucky to talk to him several years later in broadcasting, whether it was on radio or doing interviews for the score, SportsCenter, TSN. He was, uh, again, another gracious, gracious guy. You know, I'm very lucky. I've met my idols and they've all been really kind to me for whatever reason. I've been very lucky and blessed. And uh, no complaints at all. But he's uh, he's just something about him growing up, you know, right? He's the guy that you would see on TV every Saturday. I'm um, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, playing for the Maple Leafs. That was my team. And yeah, just uh, a pretty cool experience to meet him then and to interact with him as an adult years later. And we've seen, of course, during the uh, terrible passing of Borea Salming when he came oh, back to Toronto. Yeah. Just the way Daryl Sittler reacted and the way he, you could just see how he cared. You're actually uh, triggering me in a good way, Tony. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you my really quick Daryl Sittler thing, which was I was at a some kind of event and he was taking people at the end to come up and talk to him. Not only did he wait till everyone went through the line, but when I went up to him, I said, "Mr. Sittler, I got to tell you about what I remember. I was with my dad sitting in the family room that night against Boston. Six goals, four assists, ten assists. How special that was." You don't think I was about the 10 millionth person that, that asked him or told him about this? And yet he looked at me like this was the most important thing he had heard and that he was so touched that me and my father had even spent this time thinking about it. Nice. It made me feel great. And it, just like you say, it's a great example of a class individual. Yeah. And, and you know what? It doesn't take much to be nice to people, you know? And, and I think examples like Daryl and you know, like Wayne and Jean Bellabeau, are our perfect proof of that. Excellent. Well, let's not ruin your streak, but I want to close with one last one. You spent time with the iconic lead manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, Tommy Lasorda. <laughs> Tommy Lasorda. So I got to cover Tommy at the uh, at the Baseball Hall of Fame in St. Mary's, Ontario, when he was inducted maybe over, I guess, over a decade now. And uh, what an experience. He was a unique duck. <laughs> I remember talking to him thinking, boy, this guy is brash and abrasive, but I thought he was funny. And then he went up to do his interview, sorry, which was great. He, he was fantastic, wonderful storyteller, but you could tell he didn't really want to do it, but he still did it. And then when he went to give his 
his speech, he was talking about names and Italian names. And I guess I don't think he can get away with it now in 2023, but he talked about, you know why so many Italians are called Tony like this guy? And he pointed at me like this guy, because they put stamp on the head to New York. And I was thinking, oh my God, why did I get, how did I get into this speech? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he was an interesting guy. Really, I'm really glad I got to meet him. And uh, yeah, what a showman. That's that's what I think when I think of Tom Lasorda. What a showman. That's excellent. Now, Tony, as we wrap up, I don't want to miss out. I did want to ask you about your public address work. You mentioned it. Mississauga Steelheads of the Ontario Hockey League. I want to know what your live in-arena PA experience has been like. It's been phenomenal. I was lucky to do the PA for the Memorial Cup in Mississauga in 2011. And uh, also in that same year, they played Owen Sound in the finals. So talk about irony. You know, I got my start in Owen Sound, and here's Mississauga playing Owen Sound in the OHL final. And that game, that series, went seven games, and the seventh game went into overtime before Owen Sound won, which was good for them. They had half the arena in Mississauga was Owen Sound supporters, which was pretty cool. And then my friend Fred did the play-by-play, and, and Manny, they did the color. So it was great for them. But I love doing the live interaction with the fans. Even though I'm not on camera, I like, you know, Come on, fans, make some noise. You know, I, I enjoy doing that. I enjoy when, when we show fans in the stands, come on now, you can make more noise. I like kind of giving them a hard time having that interaction. But I'm so lucky because I love hockey, and I've seen so many wonderfully talented players over the years, from my time in Owen Sound to Andrew Burnett, who's now a coach with Nashville, to right now watching a young Porter Martone, who to most hockey fans isn't well-known, but trust me, in two or three years when he's drafted, he will be well-known. He's a wonderful young hockey player. So uh, it's great. I love doing the PA. I love watching the games. But the best part about all of that, Andrew, is talking to scouts before the game, talking to the head coaches before the game, and asking them questions about the sport, about teams, about players. And I learned so much. That's the best thing I find, you know? Yeah, I get to do the play-by-play and, and, and the goals, but I learn. I learn what coaches are thinking. I learn how the game has changed. I learn why... Why did those defensemen pinch there? Or why did that forward go there? You know, I, I never played the game at a high level, but I love to learn about it because it helps me enhance my viewing pleasure when I watch. Well, it's a, clearly a great experience. And we should at this time give a shout out to your old score colleague, Simon Bennett. Oh, my God. The, uh, he is the PA voice of the Toronto Marlies. Yes. Yeah. No, there's a great guy. When I met Simon at um, at the score, he was working in the archives department, so working with all the archive tapes and putting the tapes together. And I remember we would tell him, Simon, you got a great voice, man. Get out there. Network. And sure enough, he did. And he does great work. He's on 680 in the morning, just kicking butt, doing great stuff on the, on the updates. And uh, yeah, really happy for him. What a, what a great guy. Great, great colleague, great co-worker. And like I said, I've been very lucky. Worked with a lot of people. I don't know why I've been so lucky, to be honest with you, Andrew. But I've worked with so many great... I mean, I've worked my tail off. Don't get me wrong. But I've worked with a lot of great people. Absolutely. And I've just met you, but I can tell you it goes both ways. you got to be a good guy as well. And clearly you are to have all these great relationships. Tony, you started your career in a pre-internet, pre-social media world. Do you today engage with social media? And if so, where can we best follow you? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, I, I'm on Twitter. Twitter's kind of... I, I don't really post a lot. I guess I like to read and, and see what other people are saying, but I'm on Twitter on Tony underscore Ambrosio. I'm on Instagram, uh, Facebook, obviously. 
Just got onto TikTok about two weeks ago. I haven't done any videos yet, trying to figure out if I really want to. But <laughs> Instagram and Instagram and Twitter are, are the are the big two for me, for sure. Yeah. Well, when it comes to TikTok, I can loan you out my sixteen year old because she can get <laughs> she'll get you straightened out real quick. Yeah, I love the way. Oh, it's funny. I have a neat, uh, sorry, a nephew who's nine, and he is so good on that computer. Like I'm learning stuff from him all the time. It's amazing. And of course, listeners should go to TonyAmbrosio.com for the full Tony Ambrosio experience. That's right. Yes. That's my riveting website. Uh, every once in a while, I'll write stories on there. I should maybe update it once in a while. If you want to see some funny videos and pictures, it's there as well. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> Tony, it has been fabulous meeting you, getting to hear all your stories from your career. And uh, I want to wish you a continued success going forward. Oh, Andrew, thank you so much. And uh, it's been an honor to be on. I've never been thought of as a legend before, but I guess when you're my age, I guess I guess you are you're all legends, I guess. And uh, really enjoyed the conversation and uh, all the best to you and yours. And, uh, and uh, thank you again. It's been an honor. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure to have you. And to the listeners, on behalf of Tony Ambrosio, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.